What a whirlwind. Shortly after California is hit by Hurricane Hillary, now it's Florida receiving Hurricane Adalia, making landfall as a Category 4 storm with 125-mile-hour winds. Hold the hydrangeas and forget about butterfrosting. A new article in the New York Times reports on the far-reaching changes to wedding planning because of highly unpleasant weather tied to climate change. And these straws suck. A new paper shows the presence of forever chemicals like PFAS in paper straws. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, we're talking with Kate Ryder, CEO and founder of Maven, the world's largest femtech provider for women's and family services, and a phrase that perhaps is used a lot now, but it still describes something rare, a unicorn in the femtech space. So really looking forward to talking with her. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nate DiNicola, a perpetually post-call OBGYN in Southern California and the environmental health expert for our national OBGYN society called ACOG and the international OBGYN society called FIGO. And I'm Bruce Picard, a Southern California OBGYN who's not perpetually post-call anymore as I'm in my climate activist phase two of my career. And I've given, I just tallied them up, over 100 invited presentations on climate change and health. So Nate, what's been going on this week with you? You look okay this time. You don't look totally exhausted. It's, it's all an illusion. And that, uh, that illusion is one of the things that I learned at a recent trip to the Magic Castle. Have you been there before? I have. It's been some time. My father used to belong. What did you learn? Well, I learned that I have a lot of uh, a long ways to go to pull off an effective card trick. I mean, we, we've come a long way from just pick a card, any card. and I mean, these guys were incredible. They, they just, I can't really do justice to what they did, but it really did make you leave the experience thinking, how on earth did that card appear under that stack of napkins? Or how did that watch disappear from that guy's wrist? Something I had an interest for other reasons, uh, to build my watch collection. Uh, yeah, we were up there for, uh, for a high school friend's birthday party, and it, it, was, it was exactly what, what you want it to be. It kind of gave you that sense of awe and magic and wonder. Yeah, it's a historic place. It's a very cool little corner of Hollywood. And we stayed in the hotel there, which has a 24-hour popsicle line. Dial it up and get a popsicle served to you anytime. A little magic trick. You probably didn't know about that place. What have you been up to, Bruce? That. Well, we made it through uh, Hurricane Hillary, Tropical Storm Hillary, on the coast here in San Diego, unscathed, thankfully. I guess by far the worst of the storm was on the east side of it, where the strongest winds and the heaviest rains were. But we got a couple of inches of rain, which was... Mostly really welcome around here, particularly as we head towards fire season. But the really exciting news in my neighborhood this week is that my specialty market has their annual late summer arrival of dry farm tomatoes. And I, I think I've spoken a couple of times on this podcast about how much I've been enjoying learning to cook. And one of the lessons that I've learned is if you have really good ingredients, 
you don't really have to know what you're doing. You just stay out of their way and feature them in whatever it is you make. And, and have you ever had a dry farm tomato? I've had many things attached to the word tomato in restaurants, and my brother's a chef, so you know heirloom tomatoes. And there are many adjectives I, to be honest, don't usually know what they refer to. But no, I, I don't think I've had a dry farm tomato. Well, you haven't lived. Dry farm tomatoes don't get any water from the time they take root until the fruit is actually picked. And they are by far the sweetest, most flavorful tomatoes. I mean, tomatoes are technically a fruit. And when you eat these things, you realize why they're in that category. They almost taste like dessert. They're incredible. And there are only a, a few farmers that actually grow these, but my specialty market gets them every summer. And literally people line up to get these things. They're just so different and they're plump and juicy and so sweet. It's, it's just kind of mind-boggling. I love them. Just like you in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're big into the, the TikTok feta cheese egg dish. Have you added any of the dry farm tomatoes to that breakfast? Well, they go along fresh along with some avocado uh, off to the side. But yeah, I've seen a variant. There are so many variants on TikTok now of this feta and eggs combo, but they actually put the eggs in, excuse me, they put the tomatoes in with the, uh, with the feta before the eggs go into the pan. And that's, uh, I guess, something I'm going to try next. But frankly, they're just so good, fresh, uncooked. I almost don't want to touch them beyond that. Well, you know, at that Heat and Human Health Summit we went to at UC San Diego, we were talking about culinary medicine. So it sounds like we need some recipe sharing on, on the podcast coming up soon. Yes, we do. So, Nate, tell us a little bit about Hurricane Adalia and uh, this whirlwind that we seem to be in the midst of bouncing back and forth across the country. You know, I don't know how much I have to add on this. I mean, this is we're recording this now as, as the hurricane is making landfall in Florida. By the time this airs, you know, the situation will have changed and maybe there'll be a new hurricane at that point. I think this story that we're telling is that hurricanes are frequent and preparing hospitals and health systems for it is kind of a regular occurrence now. It's not especially noteworthy that there's a hurricane in Florida in late August. That that happens. But our recent experience in California was was very unusual. First time in 80 years tropical storm had, had hit here. And so we just we know. We we know that these storms are likely to be more frequent. I didn't do any any digging, but from what I remember, category four hurricanes are are somewhat rare. And that's that's the level it's at right now, isn't it? It's making landfall. So I would just direct listeners uh, and people who are interested in preparing for this, if you're pregnant or take care of pregnant women, uh, we, we put a TikTok out on this. It's about two minutes and it covers some really high points. Uh, there's a lot to do to uh, prepare for potential power outages and uh, new environmental disasters. And I have to draw the links to, to climate because we're the green docks. And two things stood out to me about this story about Hurricane Adelia. This was just a spot on the weather maps, uh, an area of interest, but it went from a Category 1 to a Category 4 hurricane literally overnight. And that is not that surprising. If you're one of the three frequent listeners we have to this podcast, you will recall that we have spoken about how hot the water is around the coast of Florida. I think the hottest areas are off the east coast of Florida, but the Gulf is especially warm right now. And those waters provide, the temperature of those waters provides the fuel for these storms to spool up. And the rapidity with which this became a Category 4 is really impressive. And it has everything to do with climate change. Just want to mention that. So it sounds like we're uh, likely to see more rain on wedding days happening in the summer. Does that tie into your headline? Tell me about this. 
Well, in past episodes, we've talked about all the different ways that climate change seems to be invading ordinary life. And this particular article tells of how <laughs> nuptials are getting disrupted by the kinds of weather that we're now seeing. There was a story about a couple who had to move their wedding in Phoenix from tents outdoors equipped with air conditioning that were still not cutting the heat substantially. They had to be moved urgently indoors due to their record-setting heat wave. And another part of the country in Maryland, a wedding company that needed to provide, that I guess routinely now provides guests water spritzers, parasols and fans for high temperatures, and even eye drops for bad air quality. And how there is increasing demand for flowers and food that doesn't get ruined by heat. The trend seems to be, according to the woman who wrote this article, avoiding outdoor events altogether and also shifting prime wedding season from summer to spring and fall whether the, when the weather is less likely to be so extreme. So these are big changes. And how much do they charge for those parasols? Did they include <laughs> that in the article? Uh, yeah, I'm sure they'll find a way to you know, up it by, by two or three times. We had parasols for, for the wedding in New Orleans as part of the second line. And that was definitely something we thought about because you know, living in New Orleans, you kind of had the phrase 100% chance of rain every day. Certain climates expect that, others don't. And it sounds like what you're saying is that a lot of regions that typically would expect good weather certain times of the year, they can't expect that anymore. So one more adaptation we have to make for, uh, for wedding season. Right. And so now tell me a little bit more about why you think paper straws suck, Nate. Well, they, they kind of don't, which is the problem. <laughs> That's why I didn't like them. I just found them to not work very well. But the story is, is as described. So researchers have found that there is uh, this PFOS, which is a endocrine disrupting or a hormone disrupting chemical. So basically it, it can disrupt or it can, it can interfere with how your body would usually uh, have its hormones function. And estrogen is one of the key hormones that can be impacted, of course, very central to women's health for everything from fertility to breast cancer risk. Now, when we talk about these chemicals, typically it's in the sense of regular daily exposures that over time add up to a lot. And exposures during pregnancy, which is a vulnerable window of human development, where even small impacts can make a big change on, on your health. We're not really talking about the amount of exposure that comes through the, whatever, you know, a few seconds of sipping a straw. That That's not really what we're warning about when we talk about decreasing the use of plastic straws. It's more that, that the plastic straws and all the single-use plastic eventually gets through waste into our water supplies, and that becomes then just integrated into things we eat and drink. And so that's why we see things like there's microplastics found in the placenta and, and found in the breast milk. And so I think we want to definitely measure this, this headline in the appropriate way. So it's not that paper straws are terrible also, but but we do have to pay attention to this if we're, if we're looking to avoid endocrine-disrupting chemicals in, in every way. Yeah, and we want to be intellectually honest with these recommendations and the directions that we need to move things in, because oftentimes solutions pose their own sets of problems. But, you know, I applaud the idea of paper straws. It sounds like in their current iteration, they are not optimal, and we need to improve upon them. So uh, I think it's, it's good to point that out. Yeah, th there is this concept in environmental... Uh, studies called regrettable substitution, where you replace one thing that's known to be a problem with something else that seems good, but then actually is not, because it's got its own set of problems. Uh, that happened when we had uh, the experience with BPA-free baby bottles. That was a big trend for a while. 
because it was thought that that chemical BPA was avoided in BPA-free labels. Maybe BPA was, but a whole host of similar chemicals, not to bore you with the chemistry of it, but things like BPS, PPC, things that were virtually identical were what was replaced there. So you really weren't getting a better alternative picking the baby bottles with those labels. But there were better alternatives overall. So like glassware would be better. And in this case, you know, straws, maybe it's not the most important thing to talk about. Personally, I've started using metal straws at home. That's all I use when I'm out in life. I kind of just don't use them in general. I, I kind of get by without them. But yeah, I think our point here is um, it, it's, it's not always an easy solution to avoid the things that we're worried about in environmental health. Right. And bonus points will be offered to any of our listeners who can come up with the episode in which Nate talked about regrettable substitution before. It was very early on. That's the one clue you're going to get. And speaking of readers' contributions, I do want to share a comment from one of our listeners, happens to be an ophthalmologist in Southern California. And he said, after listening to the episode, the Femtech episode with Brittany Barreto, that it would be great to learn more about women's health initiatives and partnerships that are possible in third world countries. He said, I just returned from my volunteer assignment in Rwanda and experienced firsthand how lack of running water impacts community health and hygiene and patient care and clinic operations. So congratulations and thanks go out to Dr. Darius for this work that he's doing on his off time. And uh, he makes a very good point about the importance of basic necessities like running water in order to take care of patients and to just maintain community health. Yeah, we don't talk about it on this podcast as much because um, I think sort of maybe not on purpose, but we mostly talk about local things here in the U.S. But uh, with the work that I do with our international OBGYN Society on environmental health, these kind of things are paramount. And a lot of times it does come down to really basic utilities and kind of basic things like clean water, water that is not. So, so for example, in uh, certain parts of the world, the rising sea levels are causing extra salt in the aquifers. And that's already being seen in the population's high blood pressure spike. So there's a lot of things that we have to pay attention to and really great that our listeners are kind of taking upon themselves to work on a global scale. So on that note, please keep sending comments and questions. We, we really love uh, engaging. We've been getting a lot more recently. So go to our website, greendocspodcast.com and submit your questions. Coming up next, we are Delighted to be joined by Kate Ryder and uh, looking forward to what she can tell us about femtech, both at the local and global scale. Welcome back. Here at the Green Docs, we often like to talk about some unexpected connections between what we discuss with environmental health and things that are transforming the field of obstetrics and gynecology. Recently, a lot of those transformations have come in the form of telehealth. So today we are delighted to be talked to one of the foremost leaders in that femtech revolution. She is the CEO of Maven, which is the world's largest telehealth provider of women's and family health services. So welcome to the Green Docs, Kate Ryder. Thanks so much for having me. We are especially pleased you joined us today, Kate, because we know that your day hasn't been easy so far. Where did you come from? Were you on a, a business trip or personal or... Well, I was actually, I am up here in the Adirondacks right now in upstate New York. And so we were driving here uh, this morning and, and hit enormous and unexpected rainstorm that caused a lot of delays. So very topical, I know, for, for this group. 
And I think I recall from uh, learning about your origin story that you are no stranger to the Adirondacks. Yeah, this is where I grew up and where my parents um, still have a camp and we come up here and it's our our happy place in our very calm uh, corner of the world before the, the madness of the fall starts. And so now your kids are getting to know that area as well. Yes, we forced them to hike up mountains, which they're not too happy about right now. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's great. All right. Well, we're so pleased to have you. And, and we have a thousand questions, but we've shortened the list a bit. And really where I want to start this is understanding a little bit about your career. You were obviously a very successful journalist writing for some really important publications, The Economist and The New Yorker. You are having children right and left. You obviously had a lot of demands on your time. And then all of a sudden, here you are uh, at the helm of a really kind of a, a breakthrough healthcare company. Did you have a background in healthcare at all before you came to found Maven? Um, absolutely not. However, I do have a lot of doctors in my family, not my immediate family, but my extended family. And I think one of the, the things that I, I wanted to change and was excited to, to, to be was an outsider to healthcare, to innovate and build a care model from the perspective of a patient without the, the you know, still kind of naive to how the system, system operates. So I think looking back, um, I'm very glad I had that naivety. So I did not know what we were getting into. But I, I think what has remained is still just um, at Maven, the patient is very much our our North Star. And I, you know, I get to hear not only, I not only have my own stories, of course, but we're just getting to hear the thousands of stories that I've been able to hear from our members about their, their women's and family health journeys. It's, it's really um, amazing. And, and there's a lot of work we still need to do. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned storytelling and I feel like we hear about this so much now in terms of career development. Seems like everybody who wants to be an influencer really is trying to actually become a storyteller. How has your skill set as a writer helped you tell these stories and advance your career message? Maybe thinking in two different ways. So in journalism, you really have to make order of chaos and find a story and then tell it in a very concise way. And so I think that, you know, just going out there and saying, okay, in Singapore, what are the most important stories of the day? I mean, that's, that's, there's very little direction in that. And so I, I think that that helped a lot. There's something very entrepreneurial about journalism and, and that you always really do have to go out and talk to people and, and, and just kind of make make order from chaos and make something. I would say that's number one. And I think number two, you know, storytelling is actually proving to be a lot more helpful now in some ways than it was in, in the earlier days, because, you know, in the earlier days, it's just sheer hours and getting product off the ground and a company off the ground and, you know, and navigating a lot of the different components of building a business, whether it's the technical platform, the clinical side of our business, financial, I had to, to learn all of that and it was not easy. And however, the storytelling, you know, now it is a core part of what I do every day, whether it's talking to the market and telling, telling everyone about our product, whether it's describing the problem we're solving in the first place, whether it's trying to get talent in the door at Maven and, and, and talking to people a little bit about why we do what we do, whether it's building internal culture. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely finding that this skill that I honed in my early years of my career is, is you know, it was helpful in the early days, but it's, it's really helpful now. I love what you said about coming in without a background in healthcare being, as I guess they say in Silicon Valley, being a feature, not a bug, how it gave you a perspective that probably really allowed you to see things much more clearly than if you were 
if you had spent your whole life in the, in the, the towers of academia or in some healthcare organization. But I think we want to bring this down as much as we can early on in this conversation to individuals, to people, since people are, are who ends up listening to podcasts. What's it like to have Maven in your life if you are a woman who's maybe thinking about having a baby in the next few months? How does it figure? Maven is always just having a support team in your pocket. I use Maven still about once a month at least, um, whether it's for myself or my kids. And things happen throughout the day or throughout the week that all of a sudden can completely either create massive amounts of anxiety because it's a physical symptom or, you know, or, or something's happened to your child and you get on Google and you try to understand what it is and just the worst possible things pop up, <laughs> um, you know, and, and then you think, oh my gosh, do I have to completely cancel my day? And no, you don't, right? Maven, you know, our team, our, our care advocates, our providers, you can, you can be seeing people within minutes on Maven. And, and often I've been able to kind of see a pediatrician within the hour or an OBGYN within the hour if I have a question on something, which is a real peace of mind, I think, as a busy parent and a working parent. I think the other thing, um, though, that Maven is, is really important for and has been important for in, in my own journey is also when, when things don't make total sense and you're trying to navigate something where there's not just an easy answer, like, oh, that rash is eczema, you might need some hydrocortisone. What if it's a, you know, a, a mental health journey or a fertility journey or a menopause journey? And so these are the types of journeys where you don't just need that like quick and instant support, but you actually want second opinions and you want input and you want someone to kind of help you be a more empowered patient in the system as you're navigating all of these different journeys. And so I think that's the other way in which we're actually quite important for a care model that doesn't necessarily have you know, a mental health provider with every pregnancy or every fertility treatment or a, you know, a high risk pregnancy coach or, you know, a, a fertility awareness educator to help people understand their, their probabilities. And so that, I think, is also a really important part of what we do. So, Kate, since the patients and the clinicians are meeting really for the first and only time virtually, and you have to establish rapport and trust, when you do it in person, that's got its, you know, that's hard enough, but now doing it virtually is kind of a degree removed. How do you go about helping to make that trust and bond happen quickly over a virtual setting? Sure. I mean, a few different ways. So first of all, you know, there's, there's choice in who you're booking with. And so I, I know that particularly, you know, we have all 35 different languages in our platform. We also have a lot of providers of different races, ethnicities, sexual orientations, genders. Our culturally competent care model, I think, does build trust out the door because you could be a, a patient who's black, for instance, living in a part of America where you actually can't see a black provider. There aren't enough you know, in your neighborhood, but you can actually see someone on Maven. So we hear this a lot from our patients is that specific example is being really important. Um, and, and same with sexual orientation, right? Like I think, um, you know, we have a lot of providers that specialize in seeing, you know, the L LGBTQ parents, if they're a mental health provider or a parent coach or, you know, a, 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 a reproductive endocrinologist. And so I think that's, that's one way to establish trust in a virtual setting. 
I think the other way, I mean, really basically your, your product has to work and your tech has to work, right? So we, we actually do put a lot of resources and work into our foundational product to make sure that it's just an incredibly seamless telemedicine, telemedicine experience. And, you know, even the waiting room that you're waiting in feels, you know, a little bit more interesting than just, hey, you know, wait for five minutes, your provider will show up, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, I think... We also, we, we really vet our providers um, up front. So I know not every platform does, but we just con- consistently see a, a 4.9 out of five star ratings from our patients. And we just, you know, I, I know a bunch of our providers, particularly the ones who, you know, work with us on staff and they're just really wonderful providers. So I, I also just think we have such a good community of providers that uh, that, that also you can kind of tell, you know, as, as a patient um, within the first few minutes of a visit, whether, you know, this person is listening to you, is going to meet your needs, you know, has the right experience. And so, um, so yeah, so we, I think we got a lot of great feedback. And I also am a patient that my in-person OB is, is incredible, but I can really tell you that ultimately, you know, a lot of my providers on Maven, I have just as close relationships with. Yeah. Do, do you find there's any particular kind of visit that some patients say they prefer virtual care? I'm thinking of the experience with, uh, during COVID, when we were, of course, wearing masks for, you know, like 18 months plus straight. And so I was seeing postpartum patients on video visits. And it was the first time we actually saw each other's face because it was the first time we had a mask off. So you almost made a more, I don't know, it was a, it was a different connection that had to be done virtually because there just are things that are kind of different. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, I know that everyone loves to kind of pontificate right now on telemedicine usage post-pandemic and the future of telemedicine. But I think, you know, definitely telemedicine is like core to how we, we are going to see patients um, in the future because particularly millennials and Gen Z who live on their phones and don't have as much time, um, they're using, uh, you know, they, they love telemedicine. I think there's certainly moments when you should be going into your doctor. And I think um, the American Telemedicine Association has always said something like 75% of the time you can use a virtual visit, but 25% of the time you should be going in. And so I think just making things more convenient is really, I think, important to all of us, which is what telemedicine does. But then when you layer on a culturally competent care model, then really you're, you're leveraging the power of what telemedicine can actually do for care. You know, you mentioned a virtual waiting room while while maybe a a client is waiting to talk to a specialist. The only kind of waiting room I would recognize around healthcare is one that has dog-eared copies of -of out-of-date issues of Newsweek or Time or or Highlight for something like that. So I think any improvement in that is, uh, you know, there are just so many opportunities that telehealth opens up. But I also want to talk a little bit about the whale that Maven landed recently with Amazon, a huge company with a, a big footprint internationally. And this must be tremendously exciting and challenging to roll out this product on such a scale. Are you, how is that going? It's an amazing opportunity. And, and we love clients also who are trying to innovate in healthcare as well and just have a shared sense of mission in that regard. Global is, is such a large trend these days. Um, so Amazon's global rollout kind of represents, I think, the beginning of, of what we're starting to see a lot in the market, which is, you know, everyone wants to bring equity to their benefits globally. So not only are we really focused on health equity here in the U.S., but we're focused on, you know, a lot of employers are focused on health equity globally and equitable benefits, including financial access. 
And so fertility is one of those industries in global family building where, you know, there, there are just different laws in every country, different levels of coverage, lots of confusion. And the, the World Health Organization just published a report in the last six months that one out of six couples globally are suffering from infertility. So there's clearly, you know, a, a lot of need. And as a, as a big multinational, you want to support your families equally. And so I think that's kind of what Amazon, um, you know, what did, I think, we're, you know, we have other clients, Microsoft's another one of them who, you know, we've been public about as being a global client. And we're, you know, we're, we're just seeing a lot, a lot more of that. So, um, so yeah, so I, I think, and, and then, you know, if you think about how telemedicine is used in a lot of these different countries and, and why our model has been so conducive to global, it's because we can use our core tech platform, but bring on local care advocates and local providers who speak the same language as the patient and, and you know, understand the local ecosystems. And so that's been, a, that's how we've been able to scale it. Well, we have the upcoming World Congress for the International OBGYN Society uh, called FIGO, which, uh, which will feature MAVEN representatives uh, on, a, on a panel discussion. Uh, there must be so many things that go into providing telemedicine on a global scale that make, are more complex than, than even the challenges we, we see on a, on a local one. H- how much of it is, is the tech? And I ask this because we're working here in the U.S. We, we partner with a lot of organizations who they kind of see their fundamental intervention being just improving broadband access. How much of that is, is true at the global scale and uh, are there kind of tech things like that that are a big challenges you have to work on? So ultimately, the, I would say the biggest things that you have to kind of you know, button up are your, your data privacy and your compliance with a lot of the international laws around data. So that's a huge hurdle that you have to kind of overcome and, and staff the teams for. You know, another one is currency conversions and calculators in products so that particularly if you're offering a financial benefit globally, you know, you can't obviously offer USD in, in London, uh, you need to offer pounds. And so being able to kind of, you know, show that in the product. And then I think, you know, making sure that as you're bringing on the local providers and the local care advocates that you're bringing on the, the right ones, right? That you still are maintaining that, that same high level of quality that we have in the U.S. and, you know, abroad. And so, so yeah, so, and, and then that you're tracking everything too, right? On the, on the, on the back end. So, um, so yeah, so I just want to, so, so I, I would say that it's taken kind of quite a few years to, to make sure that we had all the pieces in place to have the kind of scale of global rollouts that we have. And I'm sure there's going to be, you know, more and more complexity. There are, there's complexity in specific countries as well, but it's certainly, um, you know, we've been impressed at the level of engagement um, in our global populations, almost at the same level as the U.S., um, particularly menopause has been another big one that has been fast growing globally. You know, I, we're, we're kind of excited about what the next five years are going to bring there. Yeah, there was that article in the Times just recently about menopause being a new covered benefit that many employers are thinking of offering. Uh, you were interviewed in that article. It, it's, uh, I think the demographics of the workforce really require attention be paid to this issue and support be given to women. And of course, from an economic standpoint, an awful lot of women who get to menopause years are often senior managers or upper level employees and companies, and they're really worthwhile for those companies to retain and to please with the benefits that are being offered. So it just seems like right after everything around fertility care, menopause is a natural fit for the services that you can provide. 
Yeah, I mean, menopause actually originated globally. So it was the UK who came forward a few years ago with a national briefing on menopause in the workforce and how disruptive and undersupported it was. And so, it, yeah, it really started as a as a global product. Um, and you know, it, yeah, it's been it's been awesome to see, and kind of also shocking to see how uh, underserved it is, not just in the U.S. but but everywhere. And I also want to underline, I think, the, the story that they featured in that New York Times article was about a woman who was perimenopausal. She was not yet in menopause. But so often in my practice, that's what I found, is that once a woman has completed that transition, the issues a lot of times are either resolved or, or easier to manage. But when you're in perimenopause, your body is really changing so rapidly. And sometimes we, we would describe it as puberty in reverse. There's so many kind of violent hormonal uh, swings and things like that. It's really almost more than menopause needs attention and care and support in that perimenopausal transition. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's what we're really excited about. And then also after menopause, there's just so many of, of women's health kind of longer term issues are dispro- you know, disproportionately appear. And when you look at things like thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions that women just never were, were thinking about. And so I think there's also an opportunity during the perimenopausal journey to, to provide a lot more education on preventative health that women can kind of take into their, uh, you know, through their midlife and into their later years. One of the things that we study when we look at uh, telehealth trends are the demographics of the users. It seems like people think of millennials, I think, still as very young. But really, the first millennials I'm a are. Millennial, so I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm borderline myself, right? You know, on the on the cusp. But but what we saw was that in the in the uptake of the menopause treatment, a lot of the people who be using this have been tech savvy for for most of their adult life. Do you see that being uh, part of the uh, advantage and the and the uptake of these menopause offerings that that the users are very tech savvy and kind of are natural facile with things like apps and virtual visits and other remote offerings? Well, actually, I mean, we, we have seen our menopause users need a bit more product education than some of our maternity or fertility or parenting users. That being said, a, a lot of our menopause users are experiencing such severe symptoms and need medication and re, you know really have needs that are truly unmet. Like at least, you know, there are people who get pregnant or are going through fertility treatments and they know, okay, go to a fertility clinic, go to, you know, a, an OBGYN. In menopause, some of the, the more shocking statistics I've, I've read is that four out of five women, when they go to their doctor, their symptoms aren't being treated. And so I think that that's why we've seen such a, a strong uptick in engagement and usage and, and enrollment is it's not even necessarily tech savviness. It's that there is nowhere else in the system that is helping me. And I've even tried and I'm not getting the help. And what you offer is so transformative in that 24-7 people can reach out and get care and get to talk to someone. And there's not that built-in barrier that, that brick-and-mortar healthcare has where the doctor's over there and they, you know, their office closes at 5 p.m. So just the idea that you have knowledgeable people available to patients, I'm sure has a tremendous, uh, it just real, is very reassuring to people just to know that they can reach out and talk to somebody at any time who is really well-trained and is there to serve them. So it's a really powerful offering, I think. And, and if anybody has any technical concerns, I'm sure they're motivated to get past them so they can have that access. Yeah, it's, yeah. thank you. Yeah. So, Kate, to switch gears a little bit, because we are the Green Docs and like to make some connections to our world and environmental health, 
we are often uh, faced with with health disparities where things like urban heat islands or more densely concentrated air pollution disproportionately affect communities of color in outcomes like preterm birth, low birth weight. And with Maven's mission, uh, you're to change the health of the world, one woman, one family at a time. That feels very, very akin to our, our core mission here. And it, it kind of looks like, you know, both the environmental uh, interests and the telehealth interests are approaching this, the same problem, maybe from different angles. So how does Maven see uh, the use of this new technology to address uh, health disparities? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I think, you know, we've been doing since day one. We're really passionate about, you know, our chief medical officer, Dr. Neil Shaw. He's very passionate about it. But, you know, I think it's a little bit what I've been talking about of this culturally competent care model. When you can build trust between patients and providers and you can get patients to engage on the simplest level, that's like half the battle. In fact, most of the battle. Um, Because, you know, we we do have, for instance, in our programs, behavior change modules, and we really focus in on certain things that people should be doing during some of these episodes of care, like birth planning, you know, when someone's pregnant, so they can better understand what labor and delivery will be like, they can better understand VBACs, you know, we, we do those things. But I think what it really does come down to is, are people engaging with your product because they trust you? And I think because we offer... We, we, we really try to personalize it to a, a member's experience and, and their lived experience, then, you know, people, people, people do. I mean, even they even say that at the assessment when, we, when they come into Maven, some of the language that we use, some of the questions that we ask are really kind of eye-opening to make them feel seen. Um, and then, you know, for patients that are lower income, we do work with Medicaid populations, making sure that we have, you know, care advocates with the right tools that are trained and and trained in social determinant support and really just personalizing essentially the product to all of these journeys and then offering the right providers, you know, I think is, is, is so much of what, what we're able to, to do to, to really help close some of the disparities. Well, we've certainly seen all summer long, a run of what I'm calling unnatural disasters going on right now in Florida, but they've been all over the country and even in Maui. Uh, And we just had a hurricane here in Southern California that thankfully lost a lot of its punch before it hit California. But do you or does Maven have any stories about providing remote care to people that are displaced due to some of these sudden and severe weather events we're seeing? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think, you know, telehealth is, is kind of perfect in those in those situations. And I know that, you know, our, our care advocates who work on the front lines with our patients and who are really the champions for our members through the highs and lows of not only their healthcare journeys, but if there are kind of natural disasters, you know, including pandemics too, right? But, um, but you know, one of our, our care advocates, um, just to kind of give you an example, supported a member who had to evacuate during Hurricane Ian, um, and she was seven weeks pregnant. This was back in September 2022. Um, she had three other children. Uh, she didn't know where to go and how she was going to be able to feed and care for her kids after evacuating. She also had hypertension. She was suffering from insomnia. And so, you know, the care advocate was able to be on the line with her, send her a bunch of messages and follow-ups you know, navigate to in-person resources. She helped her find local shelters, food banks, and other websites with kind of up-to-date resources. So she was that person in real time who was helping this mom, uh, this pregnant mom, kind of navigate, um, you know, all the challenges with Hurricane Ian. And so, you know, and and then actually after the fact, um, you know, the member ended up, uh, you know, 
suffering a loss um, during the pregnancy. And so connected with the care advocate several months later and um, and then started seeing one of our, our virtual mental health providers on, on Mavens. You know, so that I think kind of represents not only what you can do in the moment, but also the, the continuity of care that Maven can, can, can provide in those moments. It, those care advocates are such a critical first touch for all of your members. What kind of training do they receive? It just sounds like they've got a long list of responsibilities, but also the need to be able to connect really well to people they've never met. Yeah, well, a lot of our care advocates have backgrounds in social work or nursing or patient advocacy. And I would say that they are incredibly compassionate and, and spike in that. I think that's that's what makes them you know so great at their jobs. But we, we do actually have a, a large portion of our care advocate workforce now working as coaches. And increasingly, some are, are going to be credentialed and, and trained as doulas as well. So I think we're definitely, um, you know, it's, it's really exciting to be able to see all of the different ways in which care advocates can serve patients based on where they are um, and what they're experiencing. Yeah, it sounds like these care advocates really should be part of the built response to all disaster preparedness, both national and, and perhaps international. I, uh, I know for sure we could have used them uh, in New Orleans. I was there in the, the post-Katrina period, and we saw many of these same stories, you know, the pregnant women having to be transported very long distances, either before their due date or even sometimes like in early labor. So we, we have a it sounds like an increasing need for disaster response and, and a huge opportunity with, with telehealth. As you mentioned, the, the pandemic was, was one of these disasters that telehealth responded to. And there were so many waivers that were granted during that response that it, it kind of feels like that was the new norm. But of course, we're coming into a post-pandemic world. Are there any policy discussions you see that you're especially optimistic about as we transition to a hybrid model that has telehealth built in from the beginning? I think it's on how digital and in-person and the whole system can come together, how, how digital health companies and health plans and health systems can come together to, you know, this is going to sound generic, but it's really not, is, hey, how can we drive better outcomes while reducing the cost of care and delivering a better patient experience? I think sometimes, you know, it, it feels like still today, so many people have lost sight of that not simple, but very important thing that I think a lot of people in healthcare are trying to solve for. And I think the pandemic really accelerated the adoption of digital health and telemedicine. And, you know, I think there's still in an industry full of gas pedals and, and brakes, there was a lot of gas pedals with digital health during the pandemic, because it was the only thing you could do. And we just can't put all the brake pedals back in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I often refer to it as kind of we were coming off the clutch at the same time we're going on the gas. And you need both of those to make this accelerate, which, which it did largely because we could come off the clutch and take away some of that uh, resistance. So I have to ask one other question because my wife saw you speak. A, I think it was a Forbes influential women uh, lecture. And uh, she was very, very enamored by the services provided by Maven, but her employer didn't have it at the time. What can individuals do to help access Maven or, or have their employers uh, reach out to Maven? Yeah, well, good question. Thank you for asking it. They can, first of all, ask their employer, please offer Maven, um, you know, but they also can download Maven um, on the app store, just Maven Clinic, and you can book appointments just and, and pay out of pocket. We've left that service on because our core mission is, is around access. And so we wanted to make sure that we never, never turn that off and that anyone could always access Maven. So they may not be able to access a program, but they can certainly access a provider. And I have to 
ask this question before we get to the end here. Where's Maven going to be in five years or 10 years? What do you see on the horizon as the potential for this company, as well as for the outcomes for your clients? Yeah, I mean, I, I hope, you know, this whole world and care model where we're trying to plug in all of these gaps in care for women and families that were, you know, that we're continuing to successfully do that well, kind of delivering all of the outcomes that are so critical to improve improve patient care and, and particularly in fertility and maternity, where helping people conceive naturally if that's the right path for them, driving better a cycle efficiency in, you know, in IVF you know, reducing C-section rates, reducing rates of prematurity, delivering a more holistic care model, all connected as well to the postpartum experience. So I've been saying that since day one, it certainly doesn't happen overnight, but I, I would hope in five to 10 years, we are that much farther along in helping helping global populations achieve all this in global, global systems. Well, Kate, we know uh, you have family time ahead uh, in, their, uh, in the Adirondacks. Uh, I, I did want to ask, I, I saw somewhere, I think that you're a, a poker player. Do you play cards with your family? Are your kids old yeah. enough to uh, to engage in, in cards? Well, my seven-year-old son likes poker as well. He just uh, played a hand um, a few weeks ago and really liked it way too much. And we took him to the horse races in Saratoga and he really liked it. Um, so that's a little worry- worrying. I don't think I was playing poker at seven. Um, but yeah, no, I think uh, we play a lot of games in general. And I think poker is is a great game for everybody to play. And bridge. Bridge is another good one. Yeah, I, on a personal note, my, my brothers and I grew up playing poker together. I don't know if we were seven, pro- probably probably somewhere around there. Uh, and, it, <laughs> and it was one of the things we always do with our grandparents. That was one of my favorite, my favorite things. They played gin rummy, and, and we still do that, we do that this, this weekend. So, yeah, very. Do you, do you have a favorite poker hand by any chance? Like a favorite opening hand? Straight flush. <laughs> I think maybe Maven is turning into a straight flush the more that we learn about it. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for for giving us your time, especially after a long day with travel delays and all that. And we are really looking forward to sharing more about your work and your progress through our podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Welcome back. It was amazing to hear Kate Ryder and hear more about Maven and the disruption and potential benefit of real virtual care marrying itself to the traditional care model and having so many benefits on multiple levels, everything from uh, improving access to reducing the carbon footprint of healthcare and giving employers uh, more of a chance to retain good talent by better serving the needs of their employees. Now, if you are, since we always like to talk about ways that you can take advantage of the things that we talk about on this show and be part of the solutions that we need uh, on an individual level, uh, I think it's time to ask your employer about uh, what telehealth or virtual options are available through working there. Maybe there aren't any, and that would be a good nudge for them to hear from you that you're interested in this. But regardless of the answer that you get there, you can become uh, more familiar with whatever uh, online care and virtual care options there are through the health plan that you have. Many of the major health care providers throughout the country are providing more and more virtual assistance. They're part of this trend as well. 
And so uh, I think at a bare minimum, it makes sense to take full advantage of those to find out how you can access your care records and order prescriptions and otherwise get care and get help through your healthcare provider. But you have to make the effort to get online and it will only pay benefits down the line, particularly if you end up in a situation where there's some disruption to normal care opportunities. And as far as being a member of your community and helping to be part of the solutions that we need right now, certainly one one thing to think about would be assisting in your community with adaptation efforts so that your community is more resilient in the uh, event of severe weather. And it doesn't have to be a hurricane. It can just be heat waves and things like that. Whatever efforts the community is taking, your city government is taking to help out uh, local citizens, you can be part of that. And then certainly since this whole problem is fueled, no pun intended, by the burning of greenhouse gases, whatever we can do to move us away from the burning of fossil fuels will help with this problem. It's going to take a while. But as we keep talking about, it'll have immediate benefits in terms of, of your health and the health of your children and anyone else who has any significant medical issues for us to be burning fewer fossil fuels. So you can work in those directions. Nate, what are you thinking about in terms of uh, OB 2.0 for this episode? Well, first of all, excellent use of puns lately. You're, you're really on a, on a roll with these. Maybe we should call this our hot take instead of OB 2.0. Uh, I think exactly like, like you're saying, there's really uh, an opportunity for patients to ask their healthcare team and their hospitals as well about what telehealth options there are, especially in building resilience and bailing us out of these increasingly common disasters. So during hurricane preparation in California recently, we were broadcasting to our patients to follow us on social media to take advantage of telehealth because when the power goes down or when roads are closed or it's just not a good idea to be outside, you can use these options. So they're available and it is part of community resilience. For OB 2.0 and for the, all the, the doctors and clinicians out there, the theme that I took away from Kate's interview was the one of trust. She and, and the, the group at Maven clearly have put a lot of thought into how to build trust between their patients and their clinicians. And some of that's matching on cultural competencies. Some of it is, uh, you know, just in how they, they select their clinicians. But I think that the theme of trust really resonates throughout the entire experience of telehealth, which is that fundamentally you can trust. This is still about a human interaction. It's still patients and doctors. It's not you know, we can, I think, sometimes feel like artificial intelligence is coming for us all, and pretty soon it's going to be robots and chatbots and a bunch of things that are techie and unhuman or dehumanized. And from the conversation with Kate, I, I left feeling that was not at all the future. The future was very much based in this, in this human connection, and it's just being augmented and, and delivered in new ways, even across the entire globe. So I think... It's a, it's a good message for both the patients and the doctors to trust that we're still doing the same thing. We're just able to do it in much more connected ways for whenever and wherever the patient needs it. And there's such a huge opportunity here because there's always been a barrier between patients and providers. You have to go through the, in the traditional model, you have to go through making an appointment, getting yourself there, waiting around, reading highlights in the waiting room. And then finally, you get your few mo few moments to talk to this person. And as we have said, I think as recently as our last episode, health really happens outside uh, the doctor's office. And so there's such tremendous opportunity here with the expansion of virtual options 
And you're correct to point out that that doesn't mean that the original model of one-on-one care is is, uh, being replaced. It's simply being supplemented in a very powerful way and a much more timely way that I think we've probably always wanted. Those of us that provide care as well as, you know, and, and we're patients too. We have our questions and our needs and there's nothing better than being able to access knowledgeable people when we need them most, which is not necessarily Monday through Friday, nine to five, a week from now when you can get your first appointment. All right, Bruce, you, uh, you said that you were going to win the mocktail contest this, this episode. So hit me. What do, what do you got? I'm super excited. You remember I told you about dry farm tomatoes a little earlier in the episode. So I haven't stopped thinking about it. Well, and you're going to be so jealous. I made a dry farm tomato Virgin Mary with lime juice sparkly water, three dry farm tomatoes, a little bit of salt and pepper, and a sprig of basil. So I'm excited. You too? You made that also? As soon as you mentioned dry farm (laughs) tomato, I went and found some and I've been, that's incredible, Bruce. We have the exact same drink. Uh, That looks very, very uh, uh, refreshing. Uh, Bruce is showing uh, his, what do you call it, dry farm Virgin Mary? Yes. Yeah. What do you have, Nate? So I went with... The uh, uh, back to back to a classic, which was uh, mezcal and tonic. The you know the non-alcoholic mezcal substitute and tonic. But I added some boozy botanicals. Now, despite the name boozy botanicals, there there is no booze in this. This was something that my brother, who works, uh, he's a, he's a chef and he works in the restaurant industry. He came across this. This one's called Three Pepper, and it's basically uh, a mixer with anything. In this case, mixing it with a mocktail. It's got water, jalapeno, serrano, and Anaheim peppers. So those are three peppers. So uh, kind of a, a jalapeno mezcal and tonic. Nostrovia. All right. So what do you what do you think of your your tomato your tomato drink? Well, I'm not a Bloody Mary drinker, but these tomatoes are so good, and mixing it with the the fizzy water and the little bit of, of lemon juice. And the leaf of basil, it, it's really good. It's delicious. How, how's yours? You know, Bloody Mary is my kind of airport tradition before a long flight. If, if there's a bar open, I'll, that, that's what I'll get. I'll get a Bloody Mary that started in New Orleans. But uh, I wonder if this would be available before 6 a.m. in some places. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine, is, mine is very good. I, I have to kind of take back what I said on prior episodes that Mescal seems to be a flavor very difficult to replicate in a non-alcoholic form. That might be true, but you can definitely get it there. And this this uh, three pepper really provides some spice and some kick. And, you know, it's not exactly like drinking the real thing, but it tastes much closer to something with a little kick. Uh, this this is good. I, I would definitely mix this with, with many other things. Excellent. And mine is perfect for a summer afternoon where... The weather is still very tolerable here after the storm. We're very lucky. All right, so a new episode, yet another, of Green Docs will be out soon. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get listening content or stop by our website, Green Docs Podcast, all one word, greendocspodcast.com. And there you can check out the show notes and the links, everything that we've talked about on this episode. Send us your comments and questions. We like having them. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Bacar and Nate DiNicola and produced by John Beethan of Imagine Podcasting. Check out our website, greendocspodcast.com, 
like, subscribe, tell your friends. We'll see you next time.